Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus, Brendan here with Mark as usual and... Interesting. We're, we've updated our software, so we've had a little little bit of teasing problems, but I think we're on the way now, Mark, and it's thanks to our lovely sponsors that have enabled us to upgrade our software here, and um, we have the option of, which is a bit scary, isn't it, Mark? We have the option of a video recording of our podcast as well, so I think... I am feeling a bit, we, bit, bit exposed because you can yeah. see me and I can't see you. Yes, that's right. So I think if we have enough listeners or subscribers who are interested in looking at our mugs as we talk, Mark, we might do a video recording of one of these, um, which is a bit weird, isn't it? Um, Especially if you're driving along. Um, It won't really help that much, will it? You're probably more likely to crash, I think. So how are you, Mark? It is episode, well, it is episode 177, February the 19th, 2021. Welcome to all our new listeners and thank you for hanging in there to all our old listeners. So what's what's happening, Mark? Brendan, we've, well, I've been um, at work as usual, but um, I've had a very interesting experience I wanted to share with you and the listeners this week. Um, we had um, we had a client come in who had a uh, a mass die off in their uh, flock of exhibition chickens, um, and um, and and it was a bit scary, of course, because uh, um, a flock of exhibition chickens, poultry of any sort, uh, triggers a whole series of concerns about um, exotic diseases, and and we did, in fact. Uh, take samples and have them that we liaised very closely with our department, uh, New South Wales Department of Agriculture, and um, they did the appropriate testing. And we did find um, these birds had a notifiable disease. They had um, infectious laryngotracheitis, um, which uh, is only notifiable in terms of management. It's not any big, you know, massive cold, burnt earth um, scenario, um, but but I just wanted to um, to put it out there that because um, I know it's such a a when I talk to colleagues it's such a fear engendering experience. But um, uh, the department of the department was exceptionally health helpful. We spoke to their exotic diseases hotline to start with, and were referred to the pathologists and our local uh, uh, um, and. What do they call them these days? Land, land, local land air, local area um, agriculture. The liaison officer, yeah. or something like that. Yeah, um, and um, the the whole team uh, was very helpful. The whole experience was not nearly as painful as I thought it was going to be. Gee, that brings back memories of learning all those diseases at university. I L T. Yes. So what did what? So what was the outcome? What did you have to do with the with the most of the Birds that were exposed. I think pretty was it much a cull or not? No, no, there was no need for 
um, uh, Cull. It was a, there's, there is a quarantine period that he's got to keep. The birds can't go to shows and things. Um, so he's pretty, I think he's pretty pleased that he doesn't, you know, he was worried that he was going to end up with none of his genetic stock, but I don't think that's the way it will end up. I do think um, uh, that it's a little bit worrying, like this is often a disease that they cannot get rid of completely, um, and so he may end up at some point um, having to consider his circumstances. But at this stage, um, we've got a diagnosis. We've worked well with the department and uh, the client's um, under um, quarant- his birds are under house arrest <laughs> and um, and uh, um, at this stage that's all that needs to happen. So that's good. Excellent. Well, just quickly, tell me how you came to that thought that it may be that disease or how was it diagnosed? So what, what led you down that path? Oh, it um, had. Whoops. <laughs> I can, it's good we got the video here because I can see that you've dropped your microphone there, Mark. Yeah, I knocked the microphone and off the table. In my excitement to tell you about, <laughs> in my excitement to tell you about um, how we got it, um, we we um we we had that uh, was just um, we have regularly birds that come in with respiratory disease, um, and in the vast majority of cases. Um, we're treating them symptomatically. If we do smears and we see bacteria, we will treat them with um, uh, one of those permissible poultry antibiotics. But we try and steer clear of the ABs. In this instance, because of the die-off, we um, we had a suspicion. We didn't think it was Newcastle disease or AI, um, but um, uh, avian influenza. But we. Uh, were suspicious of infectious coryza, and um, I, to be honest, I didn't think we would get an ILT positive result. But the DNA was pretty clear, um, and yeah, um, we knew it was one of. It was just like you, Brendan. I was having flashbacks to those uh, poultry classes with um, Professor Gary Cross, um, and uh, and all those acronyms that just I ended up you know, getting confused about which one was which. But uh, we did narrow it down to a few of the respiratory diseases. Um, we did a post-mortem on one of the birds and sent the samples off and got the answer. Excellent. As usual, you're on top of your game. <laughs> I just didn't want to be, I just have a morbid fear that um, because we, you know, we're a practice that sees lots of chickens, that at some point we're going to miss, you know, the disease outbreak that b- cripples the Australian poultry industry and brings it to its knees and forever um, the name of the practice that was, that missed the, the, uh, the, the, you know, the, the first bird, the, the uh, primary case, the, uh, um, yeah, don't want to be that case one. Case zero, yeah. Yes. Um, okay, so enough to chat, Mark. Siri oh. Siri's talking to me in the background. I don't know what I said there. Um, you have a, well, I think you ch- this has been chosen specifically for you, this news story, Mark. You um, um, you want to rip into it and um yeah, I, th- I think it's a bit about intelligence. Um, so <laughs> away you go. <laughs> well, it's it is an interesting um, and it. I, I at first when you suggested I talk about this um, this particular story, um, I I, uh, I didn't know what to 
think, but I think it is a, it does have a veterinary connection. I do think there are some, some, uh, ways that we can look at this in, in terms of our veterinary, uh, veterinary career. So the, um, the actual article is, a um, a CNN one, which, which talks about a study, um, which looked at, um, swearing which looked at a whole heap of swearing and the tests and things that were done um, to try and, I don't know, establish links. Because um, in, you know, polite society has considered that swearing is a uh, sort of sign of low intelligence and and vulgar behaviour and probably poor education. Um, and, And, you know, people have often said, why would... People rely on simplistic, rude, crude words when you know our our, our language is blessed with such a broad um, number of descriptors that we could use. Um, but um, Timothy Jay, Professor Emeritus at uh, of Psychology at Massachusetts College of the Liberal Arts, um, he studied <laughs> swearing for more than. 40 years, um, and um, he's decided that uh, there's a whole lot of positives to come out of it. Um, and the first one, of course, is that um, um, there does seem to be some correlation. Well, it's an interesting experiment. Um, you and I often do, uh, look at these uh, articles and, and talk about the the relationship between the conclusion and the actual experiment that was done. So in this instance, uh, Professor Jay asked a, a large number of participants in 2015 to list as many words that they could that started with F, A, or S in one minute. And then once they'd done that, they asked the same participants to come up with curse words that started with those three letters. Um, and the study found that those who came up with the most words that started with F, A, or S also produced the most swear words. Now, the the uh, the conclusion is that, um, you know, that the degree that language is correlated with intelligence, said Professor Jay, um, is that people that are good at language, that are, you know, that have a wide vocabulary, um, which is often correlated with uh, a higher level of intelligence, um, that that's, those same people are, are very good at generating a significant swearing vocabulary. Um, so the conclusion was that um, the good swearers were actually this, the, um, you know, they had uh, they were smarter. I don't know whether I, I'm perfectly happy because I swear quite often. I'm happy to. Um, to accept his, I don't know that I entirely accept it on the basis of the the experiment. The second point was just that- be careful, just be just be careful what you say here, Mark, because we are um, listed as a as a um, G rated um, podcast here, and um, we might get into trouble if you drop any a. <laughs> A S or F, F words. words and You're I'll right. edit them out. You gotta believe I will that edit them out. Good work. Yes. Yes. Um, so don't do any more, otherwise it's I don't want to make work for, for you. <laughs> exactly. Um, so swearing may be a sign of honesty was his second conclusion. Um, I, I, once again, it's a bit tenuous, a bit tenuous. Um, uh, but science has found that people who cursed 
lied less on an interpersonal level and had higher levels of integrity overall. That was um, from a series of three studies published in 2017. Um, and Professor Jay suggests that when you're honestly expressing your emotions with powerful words, then you're going to come across as more honest in, and, and sincere. Um, the authors did caution, though, that the findings could not be interpreted to mean that the more a person uses profanity, the less likely he or she would be to engage in more serious unethical or immoral behaviours, which I would have thought was self-evident. And finally, pain, uh, pain tolerance. And this is uh, a particular, maybe our animals should be, um, you know, going ahead and dropping the occasional F-bomb because um, the use of powerful words uh, which, um, which trigger uh, an emotional response in the person making them, um, these, uh, these words also resulted in people releasing, um, uh, you know, hormones of the stress response, um, a flush of adrenaline, um, and um, also triggered a degree of analgesic response. And so um, when they're exercising, when people are exercising and they uh, shout out swear words, then they are, the extra adrenaline allows them to lift that extra weight or push through. And, of course, it makes evolutionary sense that if you need to fight or run, flee or uh, fight or flight, um, you don't want to be slowed down by concerns of pain. And so, you know, having a swear that triggers that emotional response before you do the bolt, um, that's likely to allow you to escape. So there is a... Um, uh, uh, um, an element of um, evolutionary sense in in that process. What did what did what, what did you think about that, Brendan? Uh, I think it's all a load of <laughs> a load of um, interesting words, Mark. I think this one. Um, uh, I'm a bit ambivalent about this one. Um, I'd, we need more study. We need more research. <laughs> is, is what I think. Um, <laughs> Having said that, gee, wouldn't would, wouldn't it be interesting if you're at parties or or, or dinners, um, which once <laughs> COVID comes out, that um, somebody asks you what you do and you say you've been studying swearing for forty years. Um, it, I do. After, I, I do often want to be in that office when someone goes in and goes, "Yeah, I'm here to um to apply for my you know next my tenure for the next year," and I thought. You know, I'd follow up on with, you know, how cursing is a sign of creativity. That's going to be like, I, I do want our universities and institutions to be open-minded and look, you know, widely at knowledge. But I just still would like to sit in the room when that question is asked. I need some money so I can study swearing. Yes, Absolutely. Well, my story, Mark, is totally different. It's about camel guts. The title is Plastic Waste Forms Huge Deadly Masses in Camel Guts. It's from Science News. And it's one of your favourite one of your favorite topics, isn't it, Mark? And, um, it is indeed. And what is that? What is it, Mark? I'm not, gonna steal, I'm not going to steal your thunder, Brendan. Well... 
I always pronounce it differently than you, don't I? Um, it's Bezos or Bezos. You call them Bezos, don't you? I do. Is that right? Is that correct? That's, well, I don't know it's correct, but that's what I say. Yes, and we're talking about polybezoars. So they've um, coined a new ter- term, which is plastic in stomachs causing a uh, an obstruction or a lump there. And um, we'll go back to the start of this story. It was Marcus Erickson was studying plastic pollution. He'd be good. Imagine if he got together with the guy who studies swearing. Um, I wonder if that would work, Mark. Um, so he studied plastic pollution in the Arabian Gulf and he met a camel expert and he, uh, who said to him, do you want to see some plastic? Come with me. So he took him into the desert, Mark, and <laughs> showed him that. a camel skeleton. <laughs> it's a bit sus, isn't it, this? He showed him a cam- camel skeleton and they found a mass, mass of plastic. And Marcus was appalled and he couldn't believe it, that a, a mass as big as a medium-sized suitcase, as he says, said in the, uh, in the interview, um, which were plastic bags, which were found in the camel carcass. And um, he didn't realise that it, it is not just plastic waste in oceans that um, is an issue. It's a land issue as well, Mark. And about 390,000 camels live in the United Arab Emirates. And a study that was published just recently, Mark, in February 2021 in another journal that I'm sure you read avidly, the Journal of Arid Environments. <laughs> it's uh, I don't know how many people subscribe to that one, but um, they estimated that around 1% of these animals are killed by plastic, which is pretty amazing. Um, 30,000 dead camels. A veterinary microbiologist at the research laboratory in Dubai um, had examined since 2008. Now, that's a hell of a lot of camel Necropsies, isn't models, it, Mark? Yeah. 30,000 30, from 2008. Um, 300 had guts packed with plastic, according to the article. I love that. Um, and in a subset of five camels, a plastic weighed from three to 64 kilograms, and they dubbed the plastic polybezoars to distinguish them from naturally occurring hair and plant fibre. And they have some really good pictures of them in the, um, in the article there. So... I don't, yeah, so, I don't like um, that name. I'm not a fan of polybezos. Poly, yeah, it's um, what would you what would you call? Well, it I don't like much? it because um, it means many. That's right. I mean, rather than distinguishing the plastic nature of them, yeah, yes. Well, 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 well I, I don't know. Plus, plus, yeah, yeah. It's, it's well, you can get back to us. I will come up with a better word. Uh, yes. So there we go. So it's not just a problem with marine mammals. It is a problem with land animals as well, Mark, plastic waste. So that's my story, and it is not a good news story. I know I've been trying to do more good news stories, but this one um, – and the picture at the start of that article is a bit um, oh depressing. It's camel's. They didn't look well, those camels. They, they look a bit unwell and there's lots of plastic around and they're sort of foraging for for food um, and they're finding plastic. So there we go. Um, so on that lovely note, I think we'll jump into our main news story, our main topic, Mark, which is a 
bit of an interesting one. It's a it's a um, it's a specific one again. We thought we'd rip through this one pretty quick, but we'll probably end up taking ages with it. It is something that I see f- fairly frequently in my practice, Mark, and I'll be very interested to see whether you see this condition as well. And it is distal urethral stones in female guinea pigs. Do you see many of these, Mark? We do. We do see quite a few of these, Brendan. It is a common signalment. Ah, well, good. Well, I'll be very interested to see your treatment methods and preventative advice to your clients and whether or not it differs from from what we do here, Mark. So <laughs> signs, so what sort of signs do we see with these? And and the obvious ones that you'd think with a with a um, urethral um, partial blockage or a, or a full blockage is um, it hurts, I think. And, and, and most common presentation we see with these are that the client brings the animal in saying that, my little girl is vocalising and she never used to vocalise much at all and she certainly seems to be vocalising um, when she's trying to pee. Um, do you find that a common present, presenting sign with these ones? Definitely the case. It's um, uh, it's definitely the vocalisation. Um, the, the, and guinea pigs sound like they're in trouble when you just like look at them sideways, they tend to vocalise. But there is a different tone to these guys. You can tell that they are—they're not just um, complaining about having to sit in the veterinary hospital. They're—they're they're very, very uncomfortable. Um, and it then, hurts. Then the, yes, it's hurting. And, it draw- and the other thing that's oh, sorry, the other thing that's often reported is um, you know um, associated with that is the strangure and the disurid, but also the blood-tinged urine there, so they see that in that, that litter tray or that they're doing inappropriate urination and they're seeing little spots of, of, of bloody discharge there and I presume you're seeing the same yeah. um, in your practice. Any any other sort of classic signs that you see with these when they're presented? Well, it's interesting um, that we don't see um, what we would typically call the reports of um, uh, stranguria because um, I don't think people are sort of keyed into. Um, you know, are they? They can't clearly see whether they're going to the toilet or not. They don't know what they're. They're um, not necessarily associating the movements and positions with e- production of urine or failure to produce urine. So we don't. The clients often don't report trouble going to the toilet, but they do report blood and and frequent attendance to the um, to the. Uh, to a litter tray or the area where the, the um, guinea pigs usually eliminate palachiuria or um, hematuria are two, two, two of the things that we regularly hear. Yes. So we see that guinea pig in the consultation and, and gee, we, we see these frequently enough in that my clinical examination of any female guinea pig includes flipping them over and palpating that distal urethral region there, that urogenital region there, because I, it's not rare at all to feel these distal urethral stones um, fairly fairly easily, Mark. And they tend to sit, and I presume you're going to say agree, hopefully, um, in in the typical spot, which is just inside that little orifice there. So it's it's um, right at that um, exit point there. And I, my thought, I oh, will talk about it in a minute. I've got a bit of a theory with this why they're forming in that spot there, Mark, but are you finding them in that in that particular location? In precisely the same location. Yep. 
very, very distally. Often, um, you, you very often can feel them, as you said, um, and on occasions they're so close that you can, you know, just see them. And do, do you, um, when you're palpating them and you've accidentally pop it out in the consult there, Mark, do you then admit the animal and say, well, we'll, we'll have her in for the day and we'll work her up and um, when it's discharged <laughs> later on that day, you've got the little stone there and the thing to say, look, look, we managed to get it out and um, here's your $2,000 bill. <laughs> it, um, I've never had that happen as it happens. You know I'm not a big toothpaste technique <laughs> aficionado so so once i feel it well they're straight in for a workup yes so i think it's that's one of the important things with these um in that the workup we need to make sure not make the mistake of thinking that we just have a urolith in that particular area so we need to examine and and plain radiographs is what i tend to do with with a survey radiograph of the abdomen there to make sure that we haven't got any other uroliths anywhere in that urogenital system um and also seeing what's happening obviously in that that bladder whether we've got sludgy urine or or, or bladder stones as well and we won't talk about bladder stones or, or uroliths anywhere else in that system because that's for another day um, um what else do we do with our workup mark um apart from um survey radiographs what else are you thinking of doing with these well um i'm always keen to um for the workup part i'm always keen to uh get as much information as i can i i um always want to get a sample of the urine and make sure that because there may be times when um well, i have had one case where i think uh the uh urolith a single urolith it may have set off a UTI, but the the um, urolith was. I suspect they some of these pass without us even knowing. Um, uh, but the UTI was the problem. So having a look at some urine um, at the same time is an important thing to do. Um, uh, the radiographs, general physical exam, maintain their hydration status. That's really critical. Making sure that they're not dehydrated in any way because that's only going to make things worse. Um, yes. Bloods? Well, we use the bloods to make a bit of an assessment about um, their hydration status. But to be honest, um, I can't say to you that they're um, they're uh, hugely useful in most cases. Um, obviously, if there is renal disease, um, then um, then that would be very useful to know before you undertook. Uh, the procedures to correct things. Um, but um, in most instances, the, that's not a feature of the cases we see. Yeah, I agree that majority of them, the bloods are relatively unremarkable, but um, ideally we do, do that regardless in case we're picking up some unrelated condition and we haven't just focused in on the urolith as being the only problem with that guinea pig. So how do we treat the mark? What What's your method? Um, you don't like the toothpaste method, method which is squeezing them out. Um, and um, I think that's potentially is bit of an option with them once they're anaesthetised, um, but I'm probably well, think, jumping ahead. You, no, I think you do, that's the first thing. You've got to get them anaesthetised. Um, and, uh, and I think, um, you know, uh, you, they, you don't need, once they're um, 
any fluid deficits are corrected once you've uh, got them hydrated adequately um, and once you have applied some pre-medication that includes an analgesic um, then getting them anaesthetized and um, and set up for a procedure is a good thing to do um, the next thing once they're anaesthetized, I, um, this is a case where we tend to use a little bit of uh, of our um, our lignocaine gel. Um, we will put a little bit into um, a, a syringe and um, use a catheter to try and introduce it into the um, terminal part of the uh, urethra. Um, that works pretty well. I tend to. Um, uh, uh, try and not inject um, uh, um, a local anaesthetic into the area around the urethral orifice. Um, I am always concerned that uh, those sorts of injections, if they're not carefully placed, they might lead to lacerations of the uh, urethra. Um, and so we just tend to use some of the gel. Um, I know we... Uh, tend to use the Lone Star Retractor um, to any time we're working in that perineal region to stretch the skin out. Um, uh, I don't catch the ends of the the Lone Star Retractor um, elastics, the little hooks in the anywhere near the um, the actual orifice, uh, but um, we do catch the skin around the opening and, and stretch it out um, and that in turn does tend to um, to stretch the the urethral orifice and the little bit of um, lignocaine gel causes a release of that spasm um, and and often that'll be enough for us to get a fairly clear view of the um, of the this the urolith in the the terminal the distal part of the urethra and it's amazing how how often you will be able to visualise that that um, urolith, even even before you've sort of um, opened up that region with the retractors or, or some other method there um, once they're anaesthetised. It's just so close, isn't it? It's, it's got so close to getting out and yet it's sort of sat there just inside almost like some of them end up almost like in a bit of a diverticulum because I think they've been building up over time. And my, here comes my theory, Mark. Um, I think while they form in that particular area, my, I expect there's a little bit of turbulent flow um, in that region just before um, the exit there of that urethra. And with the turbulent flow there, that's where there tends to be accumulation of the calcium-type deposits and then a slow build-up and formation of a urethral stone. So that's my theory, Mark. Mm. It's what a, do you so think I'm of just, that? Um, well... I, your theories, I love your theories. You think it's a load of crap, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, no, I, I think that, well, I, I've got a couple of questions for you. Um, do you think they form there or do they form in the bladder and pass there? I think that the yeah, I think that we almost have the micro crystals or the small crystals in the bladder, and I'm 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 thinking that they've been passed down, and normally been urinated out, but but they're not. Um, they're sort of accumulating in this little area where we're getting a bit of turbulent flow, and they're all sort of sticking to each other um, in that distal urethral region. So um, that's my thought with that, um, and I have no scientific basis for it. It's just my theory. 
And, um, yeah, no, no, I, I like your theory. I think, and it is, the anatomy in that part of a guinea pig is is not, it is a little bit unusual, isn't it? Um, yes. it's, it does have a confirmation which would would definitely um, increase the likelihood of altered patterns of flow turbulence. So it may well be that that um, anatomy predisposes to the formation of larger crystals on top of, um, you know, as they're f- the smaller ones develop in the bladder. And this is a point where flow slows and, and uh, becomes turbulent and deposits build up. You could be right, but you could be onto something, Brendan. That's my theory. That's my theory. And... I'm happy to be disproved. It would be good um, because then it means somebody's actually worked out the real reason for these forming in that region. So we try. So um, yes, we put a bit of local. Interestingly enough, I tend to still use the um, caveman technique and do use injectable um, local anaesthetic around that region. So uh, I'll take on board what you've said and I'll be a lot more careful um, with that region. But touch wood. I've been. Um, um, quite happy with the results so far so i must be reasonably gentle with my technique um, and i use a fairly fine gauge needle where i'm doing almost like a ring so almost like a bit of a ring block above above, above where the um where the um where the urolith is and then i'm trying a little variation on the toothpaste technique mark um, oh. where i'll be gently trying to gently trying to pop that um, that urolith out um, and some of them do gently pop out fairly quickly and easily in my 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 experience anyway um, and the ones that don't I end up making a small incision um, with you a do. scalpel yes um, what do you do mark well funnily enough a very similar <laughs> procedure I've got it I was going to mention quickly that um, my my aversion to the toothpaste technique does mean that I have a couple of pairs of very fine um, hemostats and forceps um, with which I try to grasp um, some irregularities on the surface of the stone closest to the orifice and try yes. to maneuver it out that way. It's a bit of a challenge to sort of get it, get it purchased, isn't it, on, on those by doing really, it that way? Yeah. Okay. If you can manage it, though, it's it's uh, it in my it, well in my experience, it seems to be the least traumatic. I like there have been occasions though, where in those um, manipulations trying to get the local anaesthetic in, um, a little bit of lube and local anaesthetic, and the and like you said, I'm not doing a toothpaste technique, but just the gentle manipulations is enough to pop them out in some yes. instances. Um, but um, but yeah, I think. Uh, uh, um, if you can grab them and get them out, that's great, but there are times that you can't. I have um, made um, incisions uh, where I just – I am causing more trauma trying to get it out and it just will not come out um, and slightly increasing the size of the um, the orifice um, facilitates removal. What do you do then? Well, after I popped it out, I just leave it, um, and it, and it self heals. Yeah, and and I I don't have any qualms about making that little um, sort of vertical incision there. And to the clients, I I often explain that as a um, before I admit the animal, and I I, I 
I usually say, look, it's a little bit like the equivalent of an episiotomy. <laughs> it's, it's not a um, little bit like it. It's a lot like yes, it. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and they can appreciate that um, and because it's amazing how many people, um, lay people realise, um, know what that is, yeah. Um, so, yeah, and, and it magically um, heals itself. So I don't try and repair that. And my, the incision over that stone um, for that episiotomy incision is... Oh, let me have a think. It would be maximum probably five millimeter, something oh, like that. It's really, would it be incision. that big? I reckon. I reckon it's often even less than that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I I'd, 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 I'd certainly don't. I have no qualms about leaving it um, and not not trying to do microsurgery and repair that. Um, and rarely, if ever, do I have a problem postoperatively with with what a stricture or something like that from that from that incision site not um, magically healing itself um, what have you found your experience with that um, I, I very foolishly as a very very recently minted veterinarian did try to um, I probably made a bigger incision than I needed to and I did put a couple of sutures in to try and hold it closed and it turned it into a disaster um, and ever since that one like you I I leave them to their own devices and I haven't had a significant problem doing that. They all do heal up beautifully. Excellent. And I think it's a good point to make and, and for those vets listening who are a little bit reluctant to perform this surgery that it's um, don't be afraid of doing it. Get in there. Um, get in there. Cut. A chance to cut is a chance to cure <laughs> in this case, isn't it? Okay, so let's quickly jump on. I said we'd be quick this, um, this episode, but we're, we're, we're chewing up the time as usual. Um, prevention, Mark, or causes. Um, I, I, I'll touch on the causes. <laughs> that, um, the yeah, crappy diets is basically all I'm going to say in that, that I have found that some of the ones that are on the crappy diets and in particular, this is, this is your, this is your little, bugbear. yep, you love, I worry them. about these, these, and thank goodness we don't see as many as we used to, but guinea pigs that are placed on all these mineral blocks and these salt licks, um, as supplements, um, I've found there's a high association with them. When I read my the clinical history form for this animal that's been presented to me, it's amazing how many of them end up having issues. So they don't need any of those supplements. So um, I think there is a link or or a, or, or a high cha- um, a link um, with with feeding these supplements and an increased risk of of developing these distal urethral stones. Um, do you want to touch on it? Are there any other sort of comments you like to make about sort of husbandry as far as um, causes, Mark, or, or other causes with, with these stones um, before we jump into preventative aspects? Well, just I was going to say that um, that I think there is a very, very low incidence of um, occurrence uh, in just normal guinea pigs, but those salt licks and um, an absence of exercise, they're sort of, you know, if we know they've had uh, mineral blocks, we're worried. Um, if we know that... Uh, they're in relatively small enclosures and don't have much environmental enrichment. That adds to our concern as well. Um, so um, uh, those um, husbandry factors um, really do worry us a bit. 
Yes. So that ju- let's jump into prevention, and I think that's a controversial thing there. And so this is the animal that we've treated. We've been successful in removing that distal urethral stone in that female guinea pig. Um, what are our post-operative sort of medium to long-term care um, prevention techniques? And unfortunately, we don't have a, a an SD diet, a dissolution diet for guinea pigs, and perhaps somebody will invent one one of these days, Mark. Um, but one of the products that's commonly um, suggested and dispensed by, by veterinarians, um, and some people um, think it works exceedingly effectively and other people think it doesn't work much at all is is the use of potassium citrate mark Um, so what's your thought about the use of that particular product and the theory is that it will it will um, affect the um, um, help stop the prevention of these calcium type stones Um, um, but the the concern about the potential effectiveness of it is that guinea pigs have very alkaline urine normally and that um, you may have to use very high dose rates of potassium citrate according to one of the papers especially um, and that then it still may not um, help even with very high dose rates Um, so this is putting them on potassium citrate orally um, once or twice a day or three times a day Um, and the concern is that we might end up with a hyperkalemia um, with them as well so do you use this product or other products, Mark, um, as far as sort of chemical methods to hi- try and prevent it? Um, and have you had much success? And Yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that the key thing here is that, um, that I, I, you know, I, I, I like to be um, someone who solves problems and and to solve problems, you've got to do something. And so I want to be a man of action, uh, uh, you know, a problem solver. And so we, I do um, a number of – there's a couple of things that I do in this circumstance, um, but I ha- I do say to the client that, that I'm doing this because I need to do something that has a chance of making a difference. Um, and I am not – I'm not – you know, this is not – there's not a lot of evidence that the things we're going to do make a huge difference. So the 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 and the next thing is that this is my understanding, Brendan, that um, we use potassium citrate in um, in dogs and cats um, to acidify their urine and acidifying the urine. Um, because potassium citrate is excreted as citric acid, um, that helps to dissolve, it changes the pH and dissolves those crystals. That doesn't happen, that's not the reason that we're giving it to guinea pigs. Um, in the case of, we can't, the, as you highlighted before, to give a guinea pig enough um uh, potassium citrate to acidify the urine you are really going it's almost impossible to do and to even approach a level where you change the ph you lead to profound metabolic change the citrate in that we give to guinea pigs changes the point of concentration at which crystals start to form the so-called supersaturation point. Um, so citrate plays a role in the way that those molecules aggregate, um, and its presence in u- urine 
changes, it raises the concentration at which um, the crystals form. It's only a marginal thing. And I don't know that in the practical reality of the world that it does make a significant difference, but at least chemically it changes the supersaturation point, um, which makes the chemistry different to what we see in dogs and cats. So yes, I do use it. I don't think that it makes, I can't tell you that it makes a huge difference. And certainly there's a high proportion of the guinea pigs where we've had to take a stone out where subsequent stones will, will form. Um, the other um, intervention um, that, um, that we've had uh, um, some success with, though it's hard to keep going, is the use of, um, of uh, uh, diuretics to increase the uh, water turnover. Um, that obviously the saturation point is um, a function of concentration and if animals are diuresing, if they're getting rid of more urine and turning over more water, um, then that is likely to um, lessen the point at which crystals form. And once again, it's a wonderful, when I think about it in theory, it should be a marvellous thing to do, um, but I can't tell you that it, uh, it, um, it turns into a practical outcome um, for us when I can't tell you that uh, um, the resolution has been uh, what we thought it would be when we started thinking about using these drugs. Yes, yes, I agree. And we, I certainly advise clients to try and do the simple things as far as in, increasing the water intake for their guinea pigs, wetting the foods, potentially offering some more higher moisture content um, vegetables, etc. Um, thinking that that might increase the the flow through the kidneys and the bladder and, and, and therefore um, a bit of diuresis there. Um, and, well, the final one we need to talk about, Mark, so as far as the potassium citrate, um, my use is that I rarely um, recommend it. Um, if I've got a frustrating case that keeps coming back with with, with um, issues and urethral um, stones, etc., then I'd potentially um, throw them on it as a last resort, but I, I rarely do it as a, as a standard um, um post-op sort of um, treatment for these ones. Um, um, the other controversial one, Mark, is, is the calcium content of foods. And, and the other thing that's sometimes recommended by vets is um, giving the client a long list of um, vegetables, etc., and saying, look, these ones are high calcium that you've been feeding. You need to feed low calcium um, foods to your guinea pig. What's your thought on that? Um, we've, we definitely have had a few, um, and these lists are available online. So clients have actually brought lists to us to edit, um, and see which parts of their food might be, um, might be on the list. And of course it seems to make, um, intuitive sense that if you have less calcium, um, going through the system, then the likelihood of the calcium carbonate stones, which most of them are, are forming, um, then, then you know, a lower concentration, less likely that they're going to form. Um, I, I can't point to any circumstance where the manipulating the calcium intake through those different foods. I think that um, these herbivorous animals are so good at harvesting the calcium and processing it um, and excreting it in their urine that um, 
that it is very difficult to change the concentration of calcium in the diet significantly enough to um, to change the crystals. I don't think it makes any difference. I agree. I agree. Um, if they're on a crappy diet, yes, you change the crappy diet, but um, I, th- I think, in my opinion anyway, um, um, going through this long list of calcium, sort of high, medium, low calcium diets and trying to adjust that, um, you might introduce other other concerns there. And I think a bit like the rabbits too with their gut metabolism and absorption, passive and active, that um, the animal's just going to alter um, things based on what it's getting there. And I, I don't think we're going to affect much change there. Um, yeah, so I think we agree on that one there, Mark. So any any final comments about um, your urethral stones, distal urethral stones in female guinea pigs, Mark, before we close? Do you, what, what, I'm always keen, well, we've got to close soon. We've talked yes. about lots. What, what about um, environment? Do you want you, environmental enrichment? Do you um, uh, encourage these guinea pigs um, to, I know there's a, an excellent, we'll have to find the video. I saw one of uh, Oxbow's, uh, um, videos of um, making little hurdles for the guinea pigs to uh, creating little runways for, for the guinea pigs to be active around to get to their hides and foods and whatnot um, using toilet paper and apple branches. Um, so so I think there is um, a few environmental enrichment um, actions that, um, that if these animals are more active, um, they... they the ter- it gets back to the basics, doesn't it, Mark? Oh, yeah. Husbandry, husbandry, husbandry. And, um, yes, good diet, good cheer, good food, um, good exercise, and um, the problem solved. There we go, Mark. We've solved it. And the um, outro man should be jumping in here, but um, he won't load at the moment, so you can keep <laughs> talking, Mark. Um, he won't load. Um so I'm going to try and load him up again so you can talk a little bit about um, um, what antibiotics generally you might um, be considering if you end up doing a culture on these ones and they have a secondary cystitis while I, I load our um, outro. Well, I think um, that it's a good tip to be very, very careful with the antibiotics that you, we we have had a number of referral cases that have been severe dysbi that had ended ended up with severe dysbiosis because of inappropriate use of antibiotics and um and as we uh, the outro man's here, Mark. <laughs> so sorry about that. You can finish that. Finish it off next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.